Uh, this is going to be at 10 o'clock, in case you missed it, 10 o'clock, okay? And my name, I love this slide, is Doug McDowell. It always reminds me to introduce myself, right? Because otherwise I'd jump right into it. So my name is Doug McDowell. Um, I serve on the board, and I was asked to share while uh, Pastor Jack and it, the missionary team was in Lebanon. Uh, they're all returning to the island uh, yesterday and today, uh, and I can't wait to hear the play, praise reports. My suspicions are we might have Pastor Jack joining us for potluck, so he'll be able to tell us all about the trip. Um, so everybody throw a shotgun to Pastor Jack. What's <laughs> up, man? Hi. Okay. I'm sure he's online somewhere, right? So we're in Isaiah 55 today. Uh, today is an invitation for those who are thirsty. Today is uh, about this abundant life that we're all invited to have uh, with the Lord. So if you remember back last week, I gave you a bit of homework. I asked you to take a look at Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is where you uh, hear about uh, the work of the Messiah, the prophecies about the work on the cross, how he was going to hang between two thieves, be buried in a rich man's tomb. Uh, in 53, we get that picture of what, the, what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then 54 is what we learned last week, and 54 was about God regathering his children and restoring the relationship with Israel. Uh, in 54, we learned about how he was going to restore it, and we were going to be able to forget that he was going to forget about the guilt and shame, and that we were going to be new in Christ. Uh, we also spoke a bit about the Millennium Kingdom, the thousand years where Jesus will rule and reign over Israel. Uh, and today, uh, moving forward, still connected to those two chapters, is the Lord inviting us to have uh, this abundant life. So let's pray and we'll get, we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here and filling this space. Uh, Lord, thank you for what your word is going to do today. Uh, Lord, soften our hearts. Help us come available to you, Lord, that, that your word can settle in uh, and change our lives, that we can leave this place different than we arrived. Lord, thank you for uh, having our family back here again and for bringing our missionaries home. Uh, we just praise you, Lord, for all the work that you're doing here in this little Hamakua church. So we just ask you to fill this space with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let this be of you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week when we were looking at chapter 54, we're going to go back and look at verse 1 just to start things off. And in the beginning of Isaiah 54, he tells the Israel, Israel people how to respond um, to all that God is doing for. And he tells this before they go into captivity uh, and before they experience God's deliverance. And that's good for us to remember, right? He's telling us how to respond through the hard times. He's saying, get ready. You're about to go through some hard times, and I'm going to deliver you, and this is how I want you to respond. And in, in verse 1, all the way back in chapter 54, he says, I want you to sing, and then I want you to break forth into singing, and then he says, cry aloud. And throughout the scriptures, the Lord calls us to worship him at all times. He calls us to worship him before the trial, 
in the midst of the trial and when he delivers us from the trial, right? And, and he just doesn't do it for the one we're in. Like, I know we don't want to pray this, but Lord, deliver me for the one that's coming. Because from my experience, it's just going to start over again. It's okay, though. It's something we can be thankful for. Because it's through those trials that he's refining us and he's drawing us closer and he's teaching us how to be more like him. So in chapter 55 today, this is linked to the work of the Messiah that we read about in chapter 53. And if you didn't get a chance to read 53 as part of your homework, being a gracious teacher at Honoka'a High and Intermediate School, you can have an extension on your homework. And then remember in 54, he reminds that in his, uh, the inhabitants of the earth to set aside the shame and the guilt. And it's important to remember, that's an important step, because too often we hold on to that. And we talked about that last week, how our own holding on to the shame and guilt, saying that we're not worthy, gets in the way of the abundant life that he wants to have for us. So in 55 today, it's a real celebration. We're going to focus on this abundant life. So here's what he says. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen careful to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Jesus might have had this passage in mind when he cried out in John 7, when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Like, I think that should be what hangs above all bars and restaurants. Like, start here. I, I would have saved a lot of life, a lot of wasted life that I was trying to fill up with other stuff if I had just realized the power of being able to fill up that hole with Jesus instead of the other things I was trying to fill it up with. So I want to draw your attention. Well, first, notice how he starts this verse. He says, ho, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a greeting. It's also like, uh, get ready. I'm about to tell you something important. Um, 1980s Thundercats animation cartoon. Anybody out there? Show of hands. Be proud. Anybody remember Lion-O and the Thundercats? Okay. Okay. A few of us. I, I see a few hands. I don't know. Like, you might want to go back and YouTube this. It was a legit cartoon. I loved it myself. Uh, there was a, these Thundercats, and the Lion-O would always raise this sword and initiate this, like, superpower, right? Because it was superpower. And he'd be like, Thundercats, Thundercats, ho! And they do that in every episode. And I just, when I read that, I can't help but, like, say, like, ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. Go check it out. It was kind of okay. But anyway. <laughs> oh, man. No, I don't think they knew of, of Lionel yet. Um, anyway, the 1980s. Okay. So check out the word everyone. I, I think this is really important. So he says, everyone who thirsts. Uh, there's times throughout Scripture and in the book of Isaiah that he's specifically talking to Israel, or he's specifically talking to a certain part of Israel, like the northern part, or, or Judah. He's even sometimes specific, and he talks to a specific city. And here he says, everyone. And this includes all of us. This is the Gentile world. This is everyone. 
So even though in 54 he was talking a lot to Israel, here he's clearly talking to all of us. And it's important to remember this because he didn't send his son Jesus back to die on the cross for just Israel. He sent him to die for all of us. And this gift is available to all of us. So a couple things he says. He says, come who thirst and you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So listen, if you hunger uh, and you thirst for like righteousness and if you hunger for the things of the Lord and you're willing to confess what Jesus did, you'll enjoy this abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10.10, where it says, I have come, yeah, I have come that they may have life and to have life to the full. And I imagine like the almighty God, the beginner of the, the beginning and the end, the one that had the perfect plan throughout all time, saying that he wants to give me a full life, I don't even think I can wrap my head around what that fullness might look like because his ways and his thoughts are so much beyond mine. I'm just thankful that he says he wants to provide this abundant, full life. And let me prove it to you because here what he's saying in Isaiah, he's saying, for all of you who have no money and without price, I want to give you of bread and wine. So bread and wine are things of abundance. They're things of luxury. They're, they're the richest materials available. And all the people, and the, especially the poor, would not be able to afford that. And he's saying, if you receive me, I want to give to you of the highest. I want to give it all to you. And that when we receive the sal his salvation, he wants to give us this abundant life. And now I'm not talking about the prosperity movement, right? Where you do good for me and I'll do good for you. That's not what this is referring to at all. He's talking about abundant spiritual life. And then Isaiah turns to the same group of people and he asks them, will you receive this gift from me? Because I will give you greater things than you ever expected. And then he says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? And I think this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. And it's really interesting to think about human nature. Uh, how many of us have pursued something, often at great cost to ourselves, things that only temporarily satisfy us? Hell, right? Right? How many? How many of us have gotten something new and then a newer model comes out and we're already plotting how to get it? Bro, the iPhone. If I just had a third job, I could buy the iPhone 142. Right? Like, Lord, what's wrong with us that you give us this gift, that you invite us into this life of forgiveness and this abundance that all things are in control through you. And we're like, wait, wait, just a second. Maybe I want this new car or I want to go get that third job so there's no time for service. Like, why do we wait? Why do we pause? And I mean, like, let's honestly look at it for a second. It's because we have this void in our life 
that can't be filled any other way than a relationship with the Lord. We try to fill it with the world, and we try to fill it with the stuff, and we try to fill it with our bad attitudes and how important I am. But nothing can fill that except for this relationship with the Lord. Because when we do try to fill it, we, we are tickled for a little bit. We have temporary happiness, and then we become uncontent. So he says in verse 2, he says, listen careful to me. Eat what is good, and let your soul delight in its abundance. I spent the last three months online shopping for something that I didn't need. The hours I wasted when the Lord had a perfect plan in my life of how he was going to give it to me. And he did. And I look back on all those hours I wasted surfing for a great deal. And the Lord said, I was going to give it to you for free anyways. Yeah. So, so he says, listen to me. He says, diligently eat what is good and let your soul delight. The invitation here is clear. The offers made, the provisions made, and everything is available. He set the table, but we still have to do something here. We've got to listen. It doesn't come to those who don't listen. It takes our time and our attention, and our effort to listen diligently. And second, we then have to eat what's good. This requires some discernment. Got to be like, oh, this is really good for me, and maybe this isn't what's best for me. Many just simply eat the meal that's set in, for, in front of them. Instead of deciding, is this what the Lord has for me? Is this the abundant life that he has for me? And then third... We have to let our soul delight in it. we got to remove our stubbornness and our, oh, I'm not worth it, or I screwed up too bad. Like, we have to get out of our own way and let our soul delight in the abundance that the Lord had for us. So Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he says, once you start to recognize that you have this void in your life that only God can fill, that's when we got to start making better choices. Because these things will never be satisfied any other way than without this relationship with the Lord in our lives. He goes on in verses 3 and 5 to uh, provide this invitation to be wonderfully led. And it says this, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Yeah. <laughs> Hear and your soul shall live. When we do, we have life for our soul. And he says, I'll make an everlasting covenant to you, the sure mercies of David. Now, this took a little study to understand what he was saying here, the sure mercies of David. Uh, it, 
it can easily be looked at like, oh, that means I'm in the new covenant with Jesus. But this sure mercies of David gives us a depth to it that's beyond it. So some, some solid scholars tell us that this is referring to the Davidic covenant that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a promise to David after he's king. Um, instead of turning there, I'm just going to kind of summarize what he says. Um, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to David, and he promises David that he's always going to have a descendant on the throne, and that the Messiah would come from David's line. And in the second part, God promises David that uh, his hand of mercy will always be upon David. That his blessing will never be lifted from David. And I think what Isaiah is trying to tell us here is that when you are in Christ, you have a relationship with the Lord, and there are certain things you can trust the Lord for, and that his mercy and unfailing love will not be lifted from you. I mean, like, how many of us were saved... And then we had such a great moral lapse that we did something we hoped that nobody would ever find out about. How many of us willfully like, stepped away from the Lord? Did God speak to us and say, uh, you're not my child anymore? Or I've abandoned you? That was just too willfully disobedient? David committed two capital crimes. He committed adultery, and then he had a man killed. I can only imagine how much pain David was in. He was a man after the Lord's heart from when he was a child, and now he's the king. But when he took responsibility and confessed his wrongdoing, the prophet Nathan said, you will not die. When we put our faith in that finished work of Jesus Christ, we have the security, and no matter the lapse of our failures, our willingful sin, it doesn't separate us from the Lord. This goes back to what we talked about last week in Isaiah 54, that that shame and the guilt that once were within the Lord, there's no place for that anymore, that we're new again in his creation, that we're set aside, that like Leningrad taught me at men's study, that our sin cannot live in the same place where the Lord lives. And once we've accepted him into our hearts, there's no room. The sin is as far away from the east as the west. And we have to acknowledge that so we can move on and become new in Christ. Yeah? That's it. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Indeed, I've given you a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people, Surely you call a nation you do not know, and the nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And so what's so cool with this piece of scripture here, it, um, and it can be a little confusing, but scripture enlightens scripture. And so through our years of study, like when we leave this world, we know that we're going to stand in front of this, like, called the Bemis seat of Christ, right? It's the, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's not a judgment of our salvation. Our salvation was a gift given to us through the work of Jesus when we trusted in him and believed in him. That is not what's happening here. The Bemis seat of Christ is where we are invited, where we will be going to give an account of what we did with Jesus. 
an account of, of what we did with our time and our talent and the treasure that God entrusted with us. And it's, so when we go into that millennial kingdom, that we'll have certain responsibilities. And we'll talk about David's responsibility because the scripture makes it clear what David will be doing. We're going to be given these assignments in that thousand years. And some of them are geographical oversights. So this goes hand in hand with what's being said here. And the scripture that's going to speak to David, I'll just kind of mention them. So if you want to write them down, you can go back and check this. But if you were to look at Jeremiah 30, verse 9, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, and Ezekiel 37, verse 25, it's clear that during the millennium, King David is going to be in his resurrected body, and his reward for his faithfulness is going to be, um, he's going to serve over all of Israel, right? So he's kind of going to be like Jesus' right-hand man. So Jesus will be teaching the children during that time, and then uh, King David will be uh, reigning over Israel. Now, i got to be honest with you. There's times in my life and times in my service and ministry that I get tired. And that I'm like, oh, have I given enough? Or um, I get weary. Or I'm like, oh, can I just go back to my old life? Like, I just go back to making art by myself in a studio. Um, do I have to continue to give or serve? And thinking about this Bema seat of Christ, I only stay there for like an hour or two, and then I get straightened up. But thinking about that, right? that the Lord is going to look at what I did with my time with him, and then he's going to make a decision and give me certain responsibilities. I want him to look back at me and say, Doug, well done. Your geographical area is Waimea, right? Like, not Iowa. No, I'm just kidding. I am sure Iowa's great. But I want him to look back and say, well done. I don't want him to like look at me and say, well, you did great for the first few years when you were fired up. But then, you know, you kind of got tired and you went back to your old life, right? I, I want to finish strong, and I, that's our hope for all of us. We want to finish all the way to the end and run the race. And then we all serve in one hand. The Lord says in verses nine, uh, 6 through 9 here, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now what Isaiah brings us here is a really sobering truth in verses 6 and 7. The people in the face of the earth, there always have been those who have known that they need to turn to the Lord. Right? We know people that have always said, I'm going to come to the Lord, just not yet. And what he's telling us here is to not wait. 
to start following him as soon as you're prompted, right? Instead of saying, well, after I get married or after I make my first million or after this or after I have fallen enough or I've gotten to the bottom. He says, don't wait when the Lord is near. Because we learned in Isaiah, or in Isaiah 51, he says that everybody doesn't always have tomorrow. When he's prompting us to confess our sin, like, do it now. Do it absolutely now. He wants to change our life and turn us away. When he's prompting us for salvation and a relationship with it, like, receive it. Like, don't make an excuse. Like, make him a part of your life now, absolutely now. Because what happens is, like, we have this idea that when I turn 30, I'm going to uh, make my vow to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, you're 32, and you're really enjoying the things the world's doing for you. You're happy, and you're prosperous. And then you kind of forget that you had made this vow that I'm going to come to the Lord and be a part of him. And now you're 35, and now your heart's so hardened that you can't hear the things of the Lord. And you end up never making that shift in your life. So let us step away. Let us let the wicked forsake his ways. The prophet here, he impresses the need for this repentance. And repentance simply means turning away and turning on to God's way. And this is what it means when he says, return to the Lord. He says, turn away from your own ways. Turn to me. Because we can never walk in the way of the Lord until we forsake our own way. And the Lord's like glorious rest, uh, restoration, this, this relationship, is through our repentance. And he makes this important point here when he says, the unrighteous man, his thoughts. So wickedness may be demonstration in our actions, but unrighteousness can be found in our thoughts. And this is an important, important to understand that the battleground that's happening in us many of the times is happening right inside of our minds by ourselves. And it's this, this unrighteousness in our thoughts. And Paul knew this when he wrote um, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, he talks about bringing every thought into obedience and captivity. And I can't tell you how often, like, things will go off the rails, and I'll look at somebody, I'll start having judgment, and in that moment, I have to stop myself and be like, this isn't right, I can't stay here, and I just have to use the name Jesus to stop it. There is power in his name. When our thoughts become disobedient, when, they, when they, we know we don't want to act that way or think that way, we have to take captivity of those thoughts and stop them immediately. In Romans 12, 2, he talks about conforming to the world, but we must be transformed by renewing our mind. And this is what it means. It means taking those thoughts captive so they don't move us away from the Lord. Because when we do this, he will have mercy on us. What a glorious promise that he'll have mercy on us and he'll abundantly pardon. It doesn't end. The problem is, is our choice to return to him. 
And he reminds us of the difference between us and him. It's meant to create humility and not discouragement. But he says he doesn't think the way we do. Like if we tried to make him think the way we do, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Because we were made in the image of God, and we can relate to his thoughts, but we can't master them. I can't understand creation or the biology of my body. Not to his level. Nor are your ways my ways. God doesn't act the way we do. He does things his way. We'd get into a lot of trouble if we expected him to do, to act the way we do. So he says that the distance between his thoughts and ours is a distance, the heavens are as high, higher than the earth. And again, it's not meant to bring discouragement. Like, I'm thankful I don't have to understand all of that. I don't want to. But thank God he does. And he cares enough about me that he's made these promises. So in verses 10 and 11, it says this. Gives us a great picture. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth and my, from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. Thank goodness that he's in charge of his word <laughs> and that he just uses us to deliver it. He starts off by giving us this great picture of the water cycle, right? This picture of the rain comes down. It illustrates that it doesn't return back up to the clouds until it grows and buds and brings forth fertile earth. It's the same thing his word does. Too often I'll share his word and then I'll beat myself up about it and be like, did I do it right? Did it go well? Did it land? The Lord says, once you use my word, like he's in charge of it. I don't have to second guess it and beat myself up. Oh, I could have done that better. It's going to do its purpose, bring forth and bud. It's going to create fruit what it says there it's going to fruit and what's interesting there when he talks about the seed to the sower and the bread to the eater is it's this illustration that the operation of the word of God's word can do different applications for some it's going to be seed that will spread and for others they're going to eat it um, and it will be the words they take in so I just love that illustration how it can do different things and have different purposes and in the context of all of this, God is reminding us that salvation and sanctification began when we believed his word. It didn't begin with anything less. It didn't begin with my idea. And if we want to continue to grow, we have to constantly be in the word. It's the word that changes us. And oftentimes I'll say, okay, I got, not me, but like, so I'll say, okay, I got saved, and now I can do whatever I want, right? Or, or I, I can make it my own ideas. And God says, wait a minute. My ways are higher than your ways, 
my word is so much more pure than your thoughts. So we got to start thinking biblically, like living through his word, because we don't know if we're in his will any other way. He says it will accomplish his will, but we don't know it unless we're in his word. We can't have the confidence that we're where God wants us unless we're in his word. So important. So in verses 12 and 13, we're given this closing encouragement. Uh, throughout these two chapters in Isaiah, he's telling the Jews and the Gentiles that he's been writing so that they may hang on. You can imagine how weary they are being in captivity for 70 years. He says, he, he's telling them to press on, to hold on that better times are coming. And he says all of this because of that Messiah's work in chapter 53. So here's what it says in verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the name of the Lord for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Yeah. Isaiah is trying to tell us here uh, that this world used to look very different. If you go back to the book of Genesis, before the fall of Adam and Eve, they lived in perfect relationship with the Lord. The earth was fertile. The garden was beautiful. The atmosphere was clean. And he's telling us that it will return to that state. This, that we will have this restored relationship with the Lord and there will be joy and peace. Again, when the kingdom again comes, this millennium time, the earth is going to be returned. Uh, there's many other parts in Scripture where it talks to us about uh, what the earth's atmosphere will be returned to. And then he says, The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, I'm not going to try to explain what that might look like, but I can't wait to see it. I can just imagine like all the trees going like, Ah, Jesus, Jesus, right? We do serve a miraculous God. He can do anything. But it's, it's picturesque that everything on the face of the earth is going to bring glory to the Lord. But I tell you, my, my favorite part's in verse 13. And he says that um, we'll, we'll have this peace and this joy. And he talks about the briars aren't going to come up, but it's going to be the myrtle tree. And uh, it shall be for the name of the Lord, for this everlasting sign that won't be cut off. In Genesis chapter 3, when we read about uh, the consequences of sin, God tells Adam that the earth is going to change now, that the thorns and the briars will make it very difficult for him to provide for his family and the people, that they'll choke out the vegetation, and that the earth will not be fertile like it once was. And so here we're getting this picture of a restored earth, like a restored relationship, that he's going to bring forth fruit, and these wonderful trees and this fertility that the earth hasn't seen since the garden. Yeah. 
So one last thing here. I can't help but see this, this parallel to our salvation in Christ. So before our lives were saved, I was, you know, we were choked out by thorns and briars, and it just didn't let any of the good words settle in. And that when we got to know the Lord, he started to remove those thorns and those briars from our life. And he began plucking them out by the, by the roots. And instead, now we have these lush trees growing in our lives. We have this abundant life that the fruit of the Spirit can be found in each and every one of our lives. And you can find that in Galatians 5. It's a really fun read. And it all happened in Isaiah 53, where Jesus bore the price for everything. He wants us to have the abundant life that's promised to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we can have this restored relationship with you, Lord, that we can set aside our old ways and be new in you. So, Lord, I just pray that your word uh, returns to you full. I, I know it will, Lord. Uh, you paid the price for us. And through each of our trials, through every victory won, we just want to be transformed more and more into the image of your son. Lord, we thank you for today. And we just ask that you continue to bless our family and our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.